0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Kingdom of God, we trace the story of God's kingdom throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Last week, we were talking in Acts 1, and we were talking about the power that we were given through the Holy Spirit and the message to advance the kingdom of God. Of God, that the, the power isn't some kind of a superpower or anything like that. The power is found in the message of the good news of the gospel. And at the very end of our passage last week, we leave the disciples gazing up into heaven. And our Bible reads this way And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, Jesus was, and a cloud took him out of their sight for Jesus' first disciples, can be summed up in in one word. This is a one word that they, they were waiting on and they were expecting, and that one word is simply hope. That is exactly what Jesus represented. That's exactly what the Messiah represented. That was what the king represented. And now here, they're standing there, they're looking into heaven... Their king has been crucified. He's been risen again. He's given them this charge, and then he leaves them. But we know that he left them because he is sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit through us is what will advance the kingdom. See, they had hope that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jewish king from the Davidic line, who was expected to save the Jewish nation and rule the Jewish people during the Messianic age. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is just doing things a little bit differently than the first century disciples would have expected. This hope carried them year after year through all kinds of suffering and hardship. Because we know that the book of Acts and and much of what we read in the epistles is the accounts and and teachings of Paul and different folks as, as the kingdom of God advanced. And so we we get to glimpse in on what happened and how they did things and where their hope lies. And we know that every single epistle, just as Tim set up for us in our scripture reading, it first, before it tells us what we should do, it first tells us who God is, what he has done, and who we are in light of what he has done. So this hope carried them through persecution, this hope carried them through suffering. See, hope is what Samwise leaned into for strength to carry Frodo up the mountain. It was hope. It was hope that motivated him. It was hope that that was pushing him. Hope of one day being back in the shire. Hope that one day evil will be eliminated and they would find themselves back in a place with little care and little worry as the, the first trilogy opens Of life in the Shire. However, this hope that Samwise and Frodo also had in the moment of the story is not the same hope we have as Christians. It's not the same, it's different. Now we might step out and and step away from the movies and think about how everything is designed and made. But the, the two actors that played these two characters in this movie, they might be able to have the same hope we do as Christians. Simply because they know the beginning of the story, they know the end of the story, and they know their part in the story. So there's a far different hope when when you're laying on a mountain that way and you think that I'm I'm hoping to go back to the shire. I'm hoping that I would experience these things. And I hope if I throw this ring into into the lava that it will fix it all. That is a completely different kind of hope than the hope that a Christian has that knows the beginning, the end, and your place in the story. That is a far, far, far different hope. we have a far, far different hope. So let me just explain a bit. The three normal senses of the word hope go something like this. First, a desire for something good in the future. We desire for something, right? As Sam Wise was talking, he was saying, I hope one day I will be back in the shire. He's just hoping for this, one day I'll be back there. He was, he was given Frodo hope that one day they will see not only their friends, but the shire where they love to be. So it's one thing, one sense of the word that we use hope for is the desire for something good in the future. A second sense is this, the thing in the future that we desire, it's actually the thing, right? So Samwise talked about the orchard blossoms. Remember he talked about that and Frodo talked about tasting the strawberries and cream. It's an actual object that we're hoping for that that maybe... We'll get there and we'll be able to experience that. And the third sense is the basis or reason for thinking that our desires may indeed be fulfilled. So it's a hope that thinking that if I do one, two, three, then I will get the outcome that I am desiring. Right. If the ring can be destroyed, then we will have our desires. If we continue to look at this little scene in the movie. Now, all three of these senses of hope are found in the Bible. They are found in the Bible all through the Bible. But the most important feature of biblical hope, biblical hope is not present in any of these ordinary uses of the word hope. Much like how we use the word hope in our everyday lives. But Christian hope is very, very different. And it's a hope that I, I hope that you guys are experiencing on a, on a daily basis. In fact, the distinctive meaning of hope in Scripture is almost the opposite of our ordinary usage of that word hope. Ordinary hope is an expression of uncertainty. Well, gee, I I hope I get back to the shower. Gee, I hope I get to eat strawberries. cream. Gee, I I hope if I throw this ring in the fire it will fix everything. There's uncertainty to all that kind of hope. You see, we know this and we experience this because so many times we attach hope to things of this world that we hope if I do something that will actually change me or it will actually fulfill me or it actually null this sense of loneliness or the sense of worry or the sense of anxiety. It's a very different kind of hope. It's a hope of uncertainty. You know, our, our, our hearts go out to everybody who is in Florida who has lost loved ones and lost things. But stop and think, these folks were in their house, and they left, and a store comes, and everything they had is now gone. If we're hoping in that, that's just how quick things can go. So our Christian hope is a very, very, very different kind of hope. See, ordinary hope is an expression of uncertainty, but Christian hope is an expression of certainty. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. It not only expects it to happen, it is confidence that it will happen. It's called faith. Do we have enough hope? Do we have enough faith to believe that what God said is going to happen will happen? Not only in tomorrow and the rest of today, but also in eternity to come. So if I am a Christian, I have a different kind of hope than the rest of the world. I'm not expressing uncertainty. I am confidently expecting it to happen. Now don't don't roll into name it and claim it things that, that so many people have fallen off the deep end and to say that's not what we're saying. We're saying as long as it lines up with the Bible, what the Bible has taught us about who God is and what he's doing and what he's going to do, then we can have a confident hope that it will happen. Where does this confidence come from? Well, simply that the character God and the Word of God is where this confidence comes from. As we read our Bibles and we, we hide our Bibles in our hearts like the, the Bible tells us we should be doing, that we learn about the God and His character and then how He has fulfilled promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. After promise. So that we know that everything he says about our lives, everything he says about Jesus, everything he says about salvation, everything he says about the gospel is absolutely true. And it changes our hope. And it also changes our hope in the future. So it comes from the word of God and it comes from the character of God. See, we know, sitting here today, if you're in Christ if you believe the Bible, we know the beginning and the end in the story, and we know the story writer. We know our part in the story. He's even told us our part in the story. We are agents of reconciliation, we are ambassadors to Christ. And we know where our story ends and how our story ends. See, that changes hope altogether. It changes hope altogether. Do you have that kind of hope today? Because I know that your worry meter would go from here to here if, if you had that kind of hope. Your anxiety meter would go from here to here if you had that kind of hope. That God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. He's put you in this place at this time. He has saved you. He's caused you to be born again. He has put you on a mission and given you good works to do. And then one day, all the suffering and, and all the, the aches and pains that you have, all the sin that has been happened to, to you will all go away. We sang in that last song, he is making all things new. He is making all things new. See, we have been giving, in fact, Peter calls it a living hope through the new birth. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 1, through 3-5. Blessed be the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Those words are not the hope words that we use Here on earth. These are hope words that are coming from heaven. That's saying, I the God, the God that created everything. I am keeping these things. They're imperishable. They're undefiled. They're unfading. And how is he keeping them? Look at the next verse. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's amazing. That God cares so much for us. If we truly believe the hope Jesus provides for us, we will simply live differently. We will just simply live differently. If I am put down, I look to my living hope for strength to return good for evil. Without hope, I have no power to absorb the wrong and walk in love. And I sink into self-pity. And what we often do is we extract our own pound of flesh in that situation. If I face temptation to be dishonest, to steal, to lie, or to lust, I look to my living hope for strength to hold fast to the way of righteousness and to deny myself some brief, unsatisfying pleasure. If I experience sickness, suffering, or when nothing is going right, I can look to my living hope for the strength to keep me going and not give up. I can look to the certainty that I am one of God's people in God's place, yielding my daily life to God's rule. I can with confidence hope in the inheritance that awaits, which is being guarded by God's power, as Peter has already told us. What is this inheritance? What is this inheritance that he's talking about here? Well, it is the kingdom of God. It is what we've been talking about for eight weeks now. It is the kingdom of God. It's God's people and God's place under God's rule without any sin. That's going to be an amazing place to be. Some of you may remember the Bible has a a, a prologue and an epilogue. We talked about this way, way before, uh, at the very beginning of our um, time in this series of the kingdom of God, that in Genesis and in Revelation, we have this beginning and this end of, of how things started and how things are, are going to end. If you remember back, the Genesis is creation, has creation of all things, then including the humans, and then there's a covenant marriage, and then there's a promise to destroy Satan's work. If you think about Genesis, that's kind of how it, it all starts. It's beginning. Like God created everything. He created the humans. There was a covenant marriage. And then Satan came in. Sin happened. And there was a promise that one day Satan's work will be destroyed and Satan himself will be destroyed. Well, now that we've marched all, all the way through the Bible, we're now in Revelation. And what we find in Revelation is the same thing in reverse. We find Satan being thrown into the lake of fire. We find a marriage supper of the Lamb. And we find a new heavens and a new earth. This is pretty amazing how God has written this book. How many different authors, how many thousands of years. But it's about Jesus as being the center. The kingdom of God is the thematic framework. And through covenant is how he administers his kingdom. So again, our journey has brought us to the book of Revelation. A book about the kingdom of God and a book about hope. It's a book about hope. I mean, the, the book starts out by saying, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we really got to guard against all the things that has been said about this book. And how many different ways we've been drugged down um, what many preachers would call rabbit holes. Because I drag you guys down some of those every once in a while. But we got to keep our eyes open on the whole picture. we got to keep our eyes that this is the end of the book. This is the end of the, the book about Jesus. It's the end of the book about the kingdom of God. And we see these bookends that are happening where Jesus, way back in Genesis, made this promise. And way up here in Revelation, he is fulfilling that promise by throwing Satan into the lake of fire, by reuniting the covenant marriage between himself and his people and causing a new creation and a new earth. He is creating all things new. So, the book of Revelation is about hope. In fact, the book of Revelation was written to churches who were about to go through hell on earth for the sake of the gospel. To give them what? To give them hope. The book of Revelation is seeing things kind of like, if you, the only thing, way I could think of an illustration today is it, the book of Revelation is seeing things from a Ukrainian point of view right now versus an American point of view. What do I mean by that? Well, if you are Ukrainian, the forces of evil have completely destroyed your life. You know these forces well and are in a daily battle with them. As Americans, we know this is happening but we are not affected in the same way. When you open the book of Revelation, what you see is the battle that is happening right now in the heavenly realms. John is writing to a small community of believers in Asia Minor who are suffering terribly under Roman persecution. It must have seemed to them, like the Ukrainians now, that they are facing the forces of evil all alone. They're being persecuted, being burned at the stake, being thrown to lions as part of a game where many of us might click on today and and watch some gladiators put on pads and, and kill each other for the sake of getting some points and some money. But then the games were, let's throw some Christians in there and throw some lions in there and see what happens. This book was written so to give those folks hope to give us hope. Thankfully, I mean, there there are brothers and sisters in this world right now are in very much facing lions just like that. Just, it might look differently. But it is a book of hope. But John sees, as God put him on this island, and he sends an angel, and he Pulls back the curtain and reveals to his readers that behind the the local opposition to the gospel being faced by the first century church lies Satan's own constant hatred of Christ and his people. Hatred for Christ and his people. The little churches in Asia Minor are fighting a minor skirmish in the ongoing cosmic war between Satan and God. Not a war, by the way, between two equal forces. Satan only exists because God is allowing it for his purposes. He is a defeated enemy. To those frightened, faithful Christians comes the message of Revelation. God will triumph. This is your hope. You can count on it. You can bank on it. Those who are faithful in his service will share in the ultimate victory. Victory. Those that are faithful in his service will share in the ultimate victory. See, if it wasn't for the first century church and and them facing the lions and them facing the persecutions, the message would have never gotten to us. Just like right now, there's places in the world where we're so busy with our lives and building our kingdoms that we don't go and tell the gospel to them. There's one thing I do know, and and I I can't say for sure that, you know, like the moment this happens or anything like that. But I know that the Bible tells me that, that when the gospel is preached to all people, then he will come. And we know that there are thousands of people that have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Thousands of people. Thousands of people. So those who are faithful in his service shall will share in the ultimate victory, so my question is and this is a question as i've been looking at this and thinking, man, you know like this has really encouraged Joe over this past week looking at hope and what it truly means, and as I try to lead others and lead others to change and lead others to to see their sin so that they can repent of it and become more like Christ as you know as I lead a, a faith family and with brothers that to help me do so, that this hope is like. What, what are you doing, Silas? Are you are you trusting what God said that that the that, that that Jesus builds the church and the gates of hell cannot touch it? I, I'm so just frustrated and aggravated of of all the the news articles and Barna doing all these searches that the church is going to die. The church is going to die, and I'm like. What are you doing? The church can't die. There's a promise in the Bible that says Jesus is the one that started and created the church. The Holy Spirit brings people to faith. The church can never die. What are you guys doing? Yeah, the the corporate model of church might die, and maybe it should die. Because truly not the church. The church is those that are on his mission. There are those that are on his mission. And and when you are on his mission, you are living a life of flourishing, and, and that's the heart of any person that stands behind the pulpit or any person that takes up the claim to be an overseer is that they want the people with them that are living life with them to flourish. And it's sometimes so hard just to, just you just want to, do you see? <laughs> do you see what he's done? Don't take the door and hit yourself in the head with it again. Go this way. <laughs> Go this way. But does faithful service define your life today? Would you say that you are faithfully in service to your Lord and Savior? If we we all went home and did spreadsheets of our times, our talents, and our treasures, and then we spent next week looking at them up here, would it show that you are on His mission I don't say that because I want you to come. No, I want you to give up everything to come and be on Joe's mission. No, I want you to flourish as a Christian who has this amazing hope that, we'll, we'll, that worry will, will be laid down, that anxiety will be laid down, that, that, that marriages will be closer together and, and stop butting heads so much because one's on this mission and the other's on this mission, and together you're, you're seeking God's mission. But are we on his mission I ask this question because the Bible is clear about our salvation. Titus two eleven through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous for good works. Romans, I mean, Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are saved for good works that he prepared beforehand. And I'm thinking that I was thinking about this today. As I was just talking, thinking about hope, and this morning, as I go over the sermon, I'm pouring over it, and I'm like, I'm, "Is it possible that maybe that that, that, that auto, the automatic default thing is we think that whenever you look at somebody's life, when I look at my own life, that oh, I'm just chasing after, chasing after the things of the world, and we got to turn people from chasing after the things of the world. But then, then God laid on my heart. I'm just wondering if we are turning to those things of the world because of the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives. That he has has convicted us of of some things, and it could have been something six years ago, and we have not yet dealt with it. Instead of going to the cross, repenting, changing our mind about what it is, and leaning into what he says about it, that maybe, just maybe that we are walking consistently chasing after these other things because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit instead of turning into Him because we don't believe or understand truly the gospel. And I know all of us have a, a bit of unbelief in all of our Christianity. I just, I'm here to say that He's there waiting for you. He's interceding for you. He's praying for you right now. We wait confidently for the return of the king, just like those first century disciples did, and just like many martyrs after them that would sing hymns as they were burned at the stake for believing that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And they truly believed what he said. What the... What does the book of Revelation say about the ultimate victory? I can only do a a bullet point survey here. What did John, the writer of Revelation, see when the curtain was pulled back? Well, we see it begins with the exalted Christ in chapter 1. And then there's encouragement through the seven churches in in chapters 2 and 3. Yes, encouragement comes when sin is revealed so that we may have the opportunity to repent. Because there's a lot of things that he, he didn't say a lot of great things about those churches. But it's a good thing to be shown our sins so that we can repent and go back to Christ. Chapter 4, the curtain is peeled back and John sees the throne room of heaven. 24 elders representing both Israel and the New Testament church. And four living creatures representing all creation bow before God and worship Him. Chapter 5, John sees a scroll with seven seals, representing sovereign control over the direction and goal of the history of the world. When a scroll is open, evil will be vanquished, and those whose names are written will share in his salvation. This chapter is so very important. A writer wrote it this way. I, I couldn't rephrase it any better, so let me just read this picture, an angel asks, just put yourself in this position of John seeing all this happening in in the heavens. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is able to directly uh, direct history to its goal? Who can conquer evil and accomplish salvation? See, that picture is the very same picture that we started today with. Samwise could not carry the ring, but he could carry Frodo, who had the burden of carrying the ring. See, none of us none of us are worthy to open up the scroll, but one. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's who we're putting our faith in. That's who we're trusting in. At first, no one answers the angel's question. John begins to weep bitterly, for he sees that if no one can direct the course of history, humankind is trapped in a meaningless round of evil, suffering, pain, and death. And brothers and sisters, do you not understand that every person that does not have Christ as their Savior, every person that is not in Christ, that is their life. They are trapped in a meaningless round of evil, suffering, pain, and death. Because everything that they put their trust in on this earth will fade away, and it will not fulfill it. Only Christ will fulfill that. That should break our hearts. That should break our hearts for our family members that don't know Christ, for our co-workers that don't know Christ, for all our classmates that don't know Christ, our neighbors that don't know Christ. I mean, if you had all of your hope in the money that you can make, in the items that you have, and then this big storm comes along and takes everything you have away, you would feel like you're in a meaningless, round of evil, suffering, pain, and death. And as we prayed this morning, I pray that all those that go in the name of Christ to Florida this this coming weeks and months and even years, that they all go with with the message of hope, the message of the true hope of Jesus Christ. Back to our story, but in Elder Comforts, John, inviting him to to look again and see an immensely powerful lion, which is triumph over its enemies and is able to open the scroll. But when John looks through his tears, he sees not the the regal lion, but a pitiful blood matted lamb looking as if he has been slaughtered. The victory of God has been accomplished not any field of battle, not by a warlike lion, but by the lamb whose life was given on the cross. As the Lamb takes the scroll from God, a hymn of praise begins with the 24 elders and is taken up by thousands and thousands of angels. We read this in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. They are singing about us. They're singing about us, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. This is the confident hope we have. This is the confident hope we have. The remainder of the book of Revelation shows us Jesus, the exalted lamb, opening the seals and and guiding history to its final purpose, the founding of the kingdom of God. Judgment and salvation fall in the world as the crucified victor opens the seals and unrolls the scroll of history. John shows that the true motive of history was always been his spiritual, this spiritual battle. We see this in Ephesians where Paul says that you don't war with the people that you see every day. There's a war happening up here in, in the heavenly places. John shows us that the true motive of history has always been this spiritual battle though normally hidden from human perspective it is now revealed to him in these many images we find in the rest of the book of revelation yes we can all can agree these images are both intricate and puzzling and even frightening at times but just don't get bogged down there keep the clear message in the forefront God himself is the one who, through his beloved son, is moving history. He was the one that was able to open a scroll and keep history going. God's purposes will be accomplished. His kingdom will come. His kingdom will come. That's probably why Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. How did he teach them to pray? Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the glorious concluding image of a renewed heaven and earth in Revelation 21 and 22. That all things as it's done in heaven will be done on earth. He is making all things new. It is a promise that will come to pass. And we can trust that and believe that because the word of God tells us. And we have seen all through history how he has has fulfilled every single promise that he has made to his people. He's bringing his kingdom we are God's people in God's place under His rule, and one day there will be no tears, there will be no sin, there will be no pain, there will be no sorrow, there will be no evil. One day we have a hope waiting for us. They cannot be defiled. Revelation twenty-one one through four says, "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and." It, Goodness. But there may be something that we that we do not notice in the midst of all this glory. That is God's ultimate purpose may be far, far different than what we thought it would be. Going to heaven when you die is not the point of it all. John's vision and revelation, indeed, in the whole New Testament, does not depict salvation as an escape from earth into a spiritualized heaven where human souls dwell forever. Instead John has shown in turn shows us that salvation is the restoration of God's creation on a new earth. He is making all things new. Instead John has shown in turn shows us that salvation is the restoration of God's creation on a new earth. In a restored world the redeemed of God will live in resurrected bodies within a renewed creation from which sin and effects have been eliminated. See, the goal is, get this, the goal is sinless people. That's the goal. The goal is sinless people. See, what God is doing, and we might not be able to wrap our minds around this at all in any way, but what God is doing is God wants to walk with you in the garden again. He wants to walk with you in the garden again. That's what the whole thing's about. He wants to walk with you in the garden again. This is the kingdom that Christ's followers have already begun to enjoy. We live just like the first disciples with a biblical hope that we know the end of the story and we know the writer of the story and the purpose of the story. The question is, is will we uh, the question is will he find faithful people in the end will we now live for god's kingdom or will we continue to live for our kingdom let me close by just reading the end of the book because these words have more powerful than 10 million of joe's words I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. By the way, he's talking about us again. Those who, those who keep the words of this book. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And by the way, that washing of the robes is nothing that you do. It's believing in what has already been done for you in Christ Jesus. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexual immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Because the price has been paid through Christ. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. There's a scary thought. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I just pray today that the it, we would feel and know some sense of this hope that you have given us. Do we have a living hope because you have caused us to be born again? If we are in Christ, and Lord, I, I pray if there's anyone here who maybe came in today is like, I really don't have that hope. Well you're probably here to hear about it because he's changing your hearts. And I pray that you would yield to him. And I pray that you would trust in him and him alone. Lord, for all of us who, man, I can imagine that just sitting in, in this room of 50 or 60 people, that there are probably thousands of things that we are facing in our everyday life. Lord, you are with us. You have written the end of the story. There is nothing man can do to any one of us. We have a living, confident hope because of Jesus Christ. Lord, I I pray that you will help us trust and believe in that hope. That you will help us trust and believe in that hope. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.